Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. We are back with a new season of Club Book, and we'll be hosting eight exciting events from September to November 2019, all around the Twin Cities Metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Nora McInerney at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. In the span of six short weeks in 2014, Nora McInerney had a miscarriage, buried her father, and lost her husband, Aaron, to an aggressive brain tumor. Devastated but undeterred, she spoke openly about her tragedies and parlayed that year into a platform to help others through grief. That platform now straddles many media. Her blog, originally called My Husband's Tumor, rapidly hit and passed the 200,000 mark for readership. McInerney also launched Terrible, Thanks for Asking, a popular yet intimate podcast which the Atlantic praised for continuously, unapologetically, ferociously plowing into subjects most people are too uncomfortable to touch. McInerney's first book, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too, in 2016, candidly chronicles her courtship, marriage, and mourning. Two 2019 follow-ups, No Happy Endings, and The Hot Young Widows Club, pick up the theme by exploring how to move forward, even when an overwhelming loss prevents one from truly moving on. That was such a nice introduction. Sometimes when people are reading introductions about me, I'm like, God, that sounds like the most depressing woman I could ever hope to share an elevator with. And I am, uh, <laughs> as the door like locks behind you. Um, and then I also get this overwhelming uh, sense of nervousness right when I walk up. Like, what am I going to say as if I'm speaking about um, something other than myself, um, <laughs> of which I am, I have to say, a leading expert in um, myself. Also, trying to explain what you do um, like for a job to your child who's like, wait, you're going to a library today? I'm like, yeah, but it's for work. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm talking. And he's like, well, about what? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to like, I'm like, well, I'm talking about like, you know, the books I write. And he's like, are you telling me your job is to talk about yourself? And I'm like, that is so astute, slightly insulting, and incredibly accurate. Yes. Yes, none of my children are here today, but I see a lot of you BYOB'd, and I welcome your babies, um, as long as they don't take any attention from me. <laughs> so give them iPhones. Everybody pile your iPhones, pass them back to the babies. We got to keep them 
occupied. Before I had a kid, I was like, I would never do that. Now if my child makes any noise at all, like you could even just be coughing, I'm like, take the phone. Take it, play Candy Crush, I don't care what it takes. Um, anyways, um, I hate audience participation. When I attend something, I am there to sit but I do have a request for you. Um, how many of you have already read my books? Oh, that's cool. And how many of you are like, look, I just come to any event at the library. I'm not judging. <laughs> look, somebody else brought me here. I mean, yeah, there we go. We have one brave soul. Um, couple housekeeping notes. I'm gonna try not to swear. We have a kindergartner. He's a repeater of literally everything. Um, he's asking a lot of questions. He's punctuating with some really interesting um, words lately. Have I gotten emails from the school? Absolutely. Do I blame his older siblings? Yes. I'm like, well, I don't know where he picked that up. <laughs> I'll talk to his siblings, who have never sworn, by the way. They're wonderful children. Um, so uh, for those of you who have um, read my books, this will be very, very boring um, for you. And for those of you who haven't, you, it will just be depressing. But um, <laughs> I mean, the, the challenging thing about standing up here and, and talking to all of you about my work is that my work comes from um, my life. And my life, honestly, most of it was really good and really easy. I got to say, like the majority of it, my first boyfriend is here. We dated from fourth to fifth grade. We never spoke for those two years. But now we're good friends. He's here. He can tell you. Like I had an easy life. Like my parents were married forever. They loved each other. My grandparents were old when they died and like just were like goodbye. Like it was everything was just like so easy. I was like now I'll go to high school. Now I'll go to college. Like I, I once got a bowl cut and people thought I was my brother. But then my parents pierced my ears and that sorted itself out. So like my life was very very good um, until it was difficult. I don't know if anybody here has ever been through anything hard. Probably not, um, and, <laughs> and, and truly, the, the older you get, uh, the, the more uh, frequently uh, hard things happen to you and in more you know, rapid succession, but I was completely unprepared when um, you know, I met Aaron, and uh, I was definitely prepared for that. I was 28, we all live in the Midwest, you know that's right, getting right near that deadline. You know, I was like, oh my God, like my dad was like, when I was your age, I did have two kids. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? Um, like it's not too late, but almost. Um, and I had dated, you know, I wouldn't say a lot, but like enough. Like I want to look at that girl like with some compassion, but I dated a lot of like the wrong um, boys, like boys where you're like, why am I like begging you to like me? Like, is that the, is that the way it's supposed to go? No, if you're out there and you're single, absolutely not the order of operations. <laughs> like, it's not your job to convince the wrong person that you are the right one for them. And I met Aaron and everything was so easy. It's, it was so like, um, I, I could almost sense like some annoyance in some of my friends because they were like, we get it, he's great. <laughs> and I was like, I know I'm annoyed with me. It's so great. And, um, it was, uh, he had a brain tumor. Um, the bio kind of took that out of my sales, but wow. It turns out he had a brain tumor. He had a, a seizure one Halloween and uh, his coworkers kind of, um, like I think they assumed he was joking. I assumed when they called me that they were joking. That's not like a typical joke or office prank, but if you knew Aaron, he might have faked a seizure <laughs> just, to, just for the laughs later. And when I got to the ER, he actually did fake a seizure and say, gotcha. 
Um, he's, and we just, the point is that we just didn't think that it was serious. We just didn't think it was serious because bad things happen to other people. And they always do until you're the other person. And suddenly, we both were these other people. And I could feel us going from people, fully formed human beings who existed in this world, to uh, being a sad story. And nobody here wants to be a sad story to anybody. Um, we're from the Midwest. We love a deal. I am a maximista. I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> not embarrassed of it. Okay. If you like compliment my outfit, these jeans, you like them? Great. They're from the Gap. They were 40% off. Like, I mean, the Gap is always 40% off, so they were full price basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they were $35, and then like I use this uh, weird coupon code online. I got so many deals, free shipping. Um, like, I'll give you these jeans. They mean nothing to me. The point is, like, we love a deal. Pity is like the cheapest emotion, and. I think that's why we're so generous with it, because it's also a very, very easy emotion. It's really easy to feel bad for somebody, and it's much harder to feel bad with somebody. It's actually a bummer that um, that boy I mentioned, um, who broke up with me in fifth grade for another woman, girl. Uh, <laughs> she looked like a woman, though. I mean, I, I don't blame him. It's a bummer that he's here, because I always use him um, when I'm doing public talks. But. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know the difference between pity and empathy. And this same friend, his dad died when we were 26, 27 years old. And I was like, that is, that's really sad. And I went to the funeral, and I sent a card. Um, and then I think maybe I dropped off something to eat. And then I never brought his dad up again, like a good friend, because it would make him sad. And then I also was careful not to mention my dad, who was alive because that might remind him that his dad was dead. You see? Right? And then we just never talked about it. And we didn't talk about it again until the night my dad died. And I called him and I said, I'm so sorry that I never brought your dad up. This is like, the, it's such a deep, like, just elemental pain. And he was like, yeah, is, is there a reason why you're telling me this now? And I was like, oh my god, my dad died, but we got to talk about yours first. Because that's we we're like 10 years behind on that topic. So, and really it was five. I have a hard time with like how old I am. It's like when people ask, I'm like, 27 or 17? I'm not sure. 37 almost? Oh, that was a, that happened quickly. Um, but the point is, like, a lot of people, I was afraid that bringing up something difficult was going to be, um, the wrong thing to do, and that the best thing to do would be to say um, nothing at all. I uh, obviously feel much differently now. Let's just review the titles of my books. Okay. It's okay to laugh, crying is cool too. Literally something I just said to my editor, and she was like, that's the title. No Happy Endings, The Hot Young Widows Club, the podcast is called Terrible, for <laughs> thanks for asking. The subtext is, is this woman okay? And the answer is like, TBD, TBD. But Aaron died, my dad died, I lost a pregnancy. It was a real trifecta of a fall. And um, when people asked how I was, and they asked all the time, they asked at the funeral, and I was like, I mean, pretty good. <laughs> um, they asked, you know, at my dad's funeral, I was like, oh, it couldn't, couldn't be better. My husband is literally dying right next to me. <laughs> um, why do you ask? People would ask and ask how I was, and I would always say that I was fine. Because one, I wanted to believe it, and two, I just didn't want to make them uncomfortable. 
and I knew that my discomfort was going to be too much for them. And realizing that, I started to go through other aspects of my life. You start to go through your own mental Rolodex of all the times that you have done that to somebody else, and it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of times when, when you're faced with somebody else's discomfort, you fill the silence, or you try to fix it, or you change the subject. You do anything except just sit with that person's pain. And that is the fundamental difference between pity and empathy, between just feeling bad for someone, which is really easy. I can feel bad for literally anyone. If you give me, I mean, just like some PMS and the right like sequence of commercials on Hulu. <laughs> like I can just be like, everything's so hard and I just feel bad for everyone. Or you can feel with somebody. And when you're coming from a place of trying to feel with somebody, it will be much easier to take any kind of action. And it doesn't even have to be the right thing. I've learned that really, that you just have to do a thing. Also, literally, I take notes. They don't make any sense, FYI. The notes, the notes I took about stuff to say tonight, it completely illegible. Like, I mean, they're words. I can read them. They don't make any sense. Um, so truly, all of my work starts with, um, well, one, myself, um, two, Aaron, <laughs> but three, the first major piece of published writing I ever had, which was uh, a co-written piece. I had a co-author, and it was Aaron's obituary, um, which we wrote together when he was on hospice. He went into hospice on November 11th, 2014. He died on November 25th. And the night that he went into hospice, um, you know, it had been one month since my dad's funeral, like exactly, and I'd written my dad's obituary. And I thought the first draft was good, but I have three siblings. And they were like, mm, I don't know. Maybe my name should go first. Um, like, I don't know. I feel like dad's like really crowning achievement was like me, and then you, and then, I don't know. It's just when you're a, a word on obituaries, an aside. By the way, if you can't tell, my train of thought is like a jet ski driven by like a drunk mammal. <laughs> indeterminate mammal from a distance. You're like, it's probably a mammal. I don't know, amphibians don't have like that good of hand-eye coordination, but where's she going? I don't know. <laughs> but we're here together, and it's a small body of water. So we'll come back, we'll come back. And you can dive off, swim for safety. I'll see you, I'll follow you to the parking lot. I'll demand your approval of me, but um, where were we? <laughs> don't, hold on. We're, that's where we were. Wow. Um, so Aaron and I wrote his obituary together. I had um, kind of struggled with writing my dad's. You always write them after a person dies, which makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it makes, it makes sense to write them after a person dies. I get it. But you write them, and you can't like check them with the person. And you're like, no, this is kind of the last word or the last public word about your death. And we're sitting here like squabbling over like how much to talk about, how much dad liked to golf, um, and you know how important was it that he grew up in South Minneapolis? I thought very. My brother was like, I don't think he cared that much. I'm like, he literally said to us, the only way I'm leaving this part of the city is feet first. <laughs> and he stuck to that. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, you're sort of stuck trying to figure out the, the last entry in this ledger and you're doing it without the person and I did not want that. 
I didn't want that for Aaron. Um, earlier, you know, my not good blog was mentioned. I didn't know it wasn't good at the time. Um, it felt good to write. I wasn't writing it for anybody but ourselves. And I wrote the blog. I wrote every post about our lives, but I was aware that it wasn't my story. It wasn't just my story. It was Aaron's. And when I told people I had started a blog, I said, you know, it's really just for efficiency. I can't keep sending these mass text messages or these group emails about his treatment and his blah, blah, blah. I always leave someone off that someone's always my older brother. He's the best one. It doesn't make any sense. And he'd be like, Aaron's tumor is back. I'm like, you didn't get the, oh, yeah, I'm scrolling through. Yeah, I didn't put you on. I put like our mailman on. Um, <laughs> A man I met at the coffee shop, um, and, and not you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, he's not cancer again. I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't. The blog was not just about efficiency, though. The blog was me feeling what Aaron could feel, which is that he was no longer a person to a lot of people. He was a sad story. He was something that people would talk about, but not talk to. And I didn't want that. So when I look back at that writing, I see a person who is trying to create a handbook for the people around us to say, this is, this is who we are, and this is what this means, and this is how you treat us, and this is how we want to move through the world, and that is a very powerful and very important thing for everybody to have. I had the gift of being able to type quickly and of language, and Aaron would just read it, and he'd punch things up. He was funnier than me. I have no problem saying that. And um, he would say what was okay to publish. And he would even suggest things to write about. Because sometimes it is easier to write those things than to say them face to face. But I wouldn't have Aaron forever. And I knew that. And I wanted him to be the person to write the last, the last story about him, besides my several books. But the point is, <laughs> I, I sat down with him that night and I said, um, Look, we can watch Game of Thrones in like 20 minutes. I really, really want to write your obituary together while you're still here. I want to plan like what your funeral is going to be, like what music you want playing. And he was like, I already have that planned. I would never trust you with a playlist. <laughs> Ever. It's all saved here in a folder called If I Die. And I'm like, oh, thank you. But did you write the obituary? He's like, what? No. So we sat down and we did what we always did, which is, we started with a joke. It's going to sound odd. Aaron and I used to joke around about um, like both of us dying. You know, I think that's sort of a, a nice way to um, approach a situation where you both will die, but one will certainly die sooner. And I would do something, you know, charming, like uh, leave all the cabinet doors open in the kitchen because I mean you're going to open them again anyways. Um, and he would walk in and say like, "Oh, Nora McInerney, age 28." died in a mysterious accident after leaving all the cabinet doors open. And we just sort of go back and forth like that. And so we started his obituary um, the same way. And he said, Aaron Joseph Permort, age whatever, um, died due to complications from a radioactive spider bite and a years long battle with a nefarious criminal named Cancer. And I wrote civilians and his family knew him only as Aaron Permort, a mild-mannered art director who loved a designer of t-shirts and concert posters and a sayer of inappropriate jokes. Uh, we talked about his high school band, which was good. 
very good, very good band. I love listening to it. Um, we talked about his first wife, Gwen Stefani, and one more aside, at the funeral, um, my friend's grandma came up to me and she said, that was so classy of you to include his first wife in the obituary. <laughs> and I just, I have to agree. <laughs> I have to agree. Now, we did not think that they would, um, the Star Tribune, bless her heart, would publish that obituary. Erin even said, there's no way this is going to be published. Like, you're going to have to write a straight version eventually. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, I obviously was worried about it. I submitted it the night he died and was like, yeah. And they were like, looks good to us. And it, and it was published. And um, you know, it told people when the funeral was, which is the job of an obituary. And, um, and then it went viral. And I felt like we had gotten away with a serious crime against journalism. But an obituary is an advertisement for your death. <laughs> so, I mean, you pay for it. They'll publish literally anything that you write. So go home tonight and go nuts. Like, <laughs> go write whatever you want in your obituary. Put it in a file that says, when I die, and it'll get there. There. I mean, there's a word. You're paying per word. But if, any, if at any point you should be splashing out, it's your death frankly, like spare no expense. So, except I did. I was like, I'm not feeding all these people. You'll get cheesecake and wine. That's it. <laughs> I, know, I know the funeral's over dinner time. You're gonna have to like bring your own Taco Bell or something. Um, so Aaron and I wrote that obituary. It went viral and truly, I don't know um, where I would be if that wasn't the case. I, um, that is how my now literary agent found me. That's, um, which is how I sold one book, which is how I sold another book, which is also how I started a podcast because I got um, so many emails from that obituary. I got so many messages, so many messages, and they were people who were offering their comfort, not necessarily people who had lost a husband or lost a dad or lost a pregnancy or some combination of those three, although there were two women, would lost all three things in the same order, in the same time frame. Key, key takeaway from this, we're not special. <laughs> like, bad things happen all the time, which is actually kind of a comforting thought when you're having a really bad day. Just think, like, this also very Buddhist. Man, someone else is having the same terrible day. I'm new to Buddhism, but that's like my key takeaway. Um, <laughs> reads one book, oh, yes. <laughs> reads one book is like, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, clearly. Um, I've read three books, just to be clear, though. Um, so I started getting all of these emails from people, and they were offering their condolences, but then making a pretty quick pivot to tell me um, their own story, um, to tell me about something terrible that had happened in their life. And sometimes these things had just happened. Sometimes they were years or even decades old. And I read them all. And for a long time, I would stay up all night drinking and also replying to all of them. And I, I I felt so connected to all of these people. And I started to feel like this thing, this monumental loss that I had felt set me apart from the world was really what made me a part of the world. That it's so easy to see our connection in happiness and in joy, but we're also so connected through struggle and through sorrow. And I started to notice something about these emails, which is that nobody cared if I wrote back. 
There was never, there was never a second reply to me. They were like, look, I just wanted to tell someone, I just wanted to say it. Ma'am, I, I did not want to get into a heartfelt correspondence with you. It just was a one-time thing. And I started to think about why that was. Like, why don't they like me? Um, I'm kidding. But why are these people spilling their guts to a complete stranger on the internet and telling this person things that, oh, I haven't, I haven't talked about this in years. And I thought about the way that I was telling everybody that I was fine. And I started to think these people have told everyone around them that they're fine. And so their friends and their family, they don't ask and they don't bring it up. They do the same thing that I'd been doing to my friend for five years, which is just pretending it never happened so that no one has to feel uncomfortable, except that if it's your loss or your suffering, you never forget. You never forget, you learn to live with that discomfort. So I had an inbox, I had, the sentence in my head that I always wanted to say and never could get out when somebody asked how I was, which was terrible, thanks for asking. I'd suggested that as a first book title and um, my publisher had said it was too negative for a book about my husband dying. <laughs> so, you know, different opinions, whatever. I was like, fine, I will take that back and use it another day. So I took that idea to American Public Media and said, I am a person who's never made a podcast. Would you like me to make one for you? Um, and I caught, like, honestly, just the right guy, Hans Buto, on the right day when he was like, yeah, why not? And we made this weird little podcast. The first 10 episodes, which is the first season, is 100% from my inbox just from people who had reached out to me, people that I knew. I didn't have to go like looking for stories. People are like, how do you find your stories? I'm like, oh, if you're alive in the world, how do you not know all these stories? <laughs> like, how, how have you not like opened your ears to the fact that these things are happening all around you? And um, we made 10 episodes and now I think we've made, I mean, they're poorly numbered online because I had a problem like labeling them. So that's my mistake, but almost 100 episodes. And when people say like, who, okay, it's so hard to explain your job when you're like, I make a podcast and you're, they're like, what about? And you want to say like, Real Housewives or like, name something else that's fun. I have one cultural reference. <laughs> I watch one show, like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. It's a recap show and we dig deep. Instead, I'm like, I make a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking and we get honest answers to the question, how are you? And we give people a space to um, tell their really sad, terrible story and people are like, why would you listen to that? And I'm like, that's a great question. You're, you're gonna have to ask the 15 million people who have downloaded it. And I think we do listen for different reasons, just like we read difficult uh, books for a lot of reasons or watch sad shows for a lot of reasons. We do all of these things to try on feelings. We do them to like flex our empathy muscles or literally just pity people. We do them for all kinds of reasons, but I think at our heart it's because we want to know what to do when it happens to us and how to be when it happens to someone around us. I always wanted to be a writer. The same boy who broke my heart in fifth grade, was one of my best friends in high school, and he used to call me uh, Joey Potter, Dawson's Creek reference, or Harriet the Spy, because I kept a journal. I've kept journals since I learned how to write with a pen. I was just always observing and always documenting things. I still have all of those journals. They are 
real enlightening, as a strong feeler as a child, clearly documented all of my mother's mistakes, <laughs> like a lot. I was like, here's the verdict on Margaret today. Not good, not good. And I would write them sometimes like it was a legal document. <laughs> I'm like, who, Margaret McInerney? What is accused of, like, oh, it's very intense. Watch out for fifth graders. Um, and I, I mean, I'm the child of a writer. This story's gonna, now we're gonna take a little, the jet ski's slowing down, okay? We're gonna, go, we're gonna go in a slightly different direction. My dad was a writer. He'd always, always, always wanted to be a writer. Um, I knew that about him. I always saw him reading. I always saw him writing in notebooks. And I knew that he was a writer, but not a writer um, of books. My dad worked in advertising. My dad wrote ad campaigns, ad campaigns for rollerblade, ad campaigns for name another thing from the 90s. You name it, he was pitching it to us over the dinner table. My dad, but I think what made him such a good copywriter is he so easily believed in the products that he was selling that sometimes I was like, are you, like, is this a cult? Like, I can't tell, am I supposed to be buying it directly from you? Like, are we in a pyramid scheme? What's going on? Um, my dad eventually transitioned to writing infomercials. Yeah, so if you've ever bought anything off the TV late at night after watching 60 minutes of compelling commercial, um, that's my dad, okay? He sold you every ab product that is sitting in your basement. <laughs> and to get feedback on them, he would send them to me at college, and my friends would be sitting on the couch drunk being like, six seconds? Are you sure? Like, this is how that... <laughs> and I'm gonna be ripped, and I was like, that's what my dad said, look, you just gotta stick with it, follow the program, um, just see the results, your, your abs are gonna be shredded, your hips, buns, and thighs, I had to convince him to stop saying buns in copy, I was like, don't say buns, say literally anything else, no woman wants to hear the word buns when she's being sold anything, he was like, really, no buns, I'm like, no buns, when have you heard a woman say buns, like, oh, I just wanna trim my buns, <laughs> no, like, no, no. So I kept that man in touch. Um, and he wrote infomercials, and I know that was not his passion, um, but that's how we got to go to Catholic school. That's how I got to go to DLSL High School. That's how I got to go to college, was because my dad spent all of his time and all of his energy, um, all of his writing creativity um, on, on, on infomercials. And I remember going to college and saying, I just... <sighs> I just don't think that I can do anything like meaningless with my life. Um, I'd just taken one um, advertising class and he was like, wow, I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize taking care of your family is so meaningless. <laughs> and I was like, that came out wrong. Um, but you know, you know what I mean? And, um, and I think he did know what I mean, but now I know um, what he meant and the value of the work that he did which was showing me that most of writing is literally just sitting down every day and doing it. My dad was so, so encouraging to me. When we were little, when I was little, he wasn't little, he was an adult man when he was my dad, but <laughs> when I was little, he would, you know, when we were driving, I'd have a notebook with me and he'd give me writing prompts. He'd say, you have to write, you know, a poem and it has to have these three words in it. You have to write a short story and this is the first sentence. You have to write um, a long story, way to keep me quiet on a long drive. Like, I need at least eight pages and don't speak. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's gotta be, and like single spaced, <laughs> child. 
you have to write a long story and two of the characters have to have uh, these names. And that's what I remember about, about my dad and about me feeling like, oh my God, I wanna do this. I wanna do this for a living. Um, you know, before the world can like really like beat your dreams out of you. That's how I felt. And um, that's where you laugh. You're like, ha, <laughs> same happened to me. <laughs> um, but that's what I wanted, um, that's what I wanted to do. And it hadn't occurred to me that I couldn't. Um, and I had my first like, column when I was in sixth grade in the Southwest Journal, RIP. Um, I started the, the newspaper. At my high school, we only published one edition. I'm not a good business manager, it turns out. I was like, we'll get to it. Look, it's, <laughs> our advisor was like, when are you gonna publish another? I'm like, we published one. Like, there's not that much news here. <laughs> it's a very small school. You guys won't let me just have a gossip column. I don't know what to do. Um, I went to college and I you know, changed my major a million times and then I was an English major and I was like, all right world, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'm gonna go out and be a writer. And I went to New York and was like, I'm here. And New York was like, so? Like, okay, and, and what? Like, what do you, what's your point of view? Um, I love to get straight A's. Um, I like to get good grades. I like to just, you tell me what my point of view is and then I'll repeat it back to you in a way that you like and then I'll get that job and then I'll write things that you like. So I did not end up as a writer. <laughs> I did not end up as a writer for a very, very long time, although all of my jobs involved writing. And it was Aaron um, who first read some of the, you know, what I now consider dopey, but at the time seemed really important, <laughs> things that I was writing and putting online in like 2010 and told me, you are a writer. And he died. My dad died, and I realized I couldn't go back to my job. I couldn't go back and pretend to be a normal person. And if I wanted to write, um, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like, the people I love, I mean, you know, is my husband gonna die again? Like, no, like, there's something about a bunch of bad things happening to you that makes you think, like, who cares? Like, okay, so I'll go and try to be a writer, and if I'm terrible at it, um, okay, then I know. And I'll go back and get a job. Um, another job if I have to. Um, I really can't remember why I started telling that story. Back to it, found it, okay. <laughs> so, this is where I'm gonna stop because then I'm gonna get emotional. I'm gonna let you ask questions because I'm definitely gonna cry because fall is the season for sadness for me and I am very tender. A few months ago, my mom gave me um, a box of stuff. Usually she brings boxes over and they say like, Nora's life and it's just like, things I gave her as a child. And I'm like, this is a Valentine for you. And she's like, well, I don't need it. Like, give it to your child. I'm like, it says to mom. Love Nora. Like, what, in what world would my child believe I made this for them? I can't re-gift a handmade Valentine. Also, the craftsmanship of this, you don't want it? And she's like, no, I really don't. Um, so it wasn't a box that said Nora's life. Instead, um, it did have my mom's handwriting on it. It was an old banker's box, and it said the deathless prose of S.J. McInerney, which uh, are my dad's initials. And I opened it up, and it was loose papers with my dad's handwriting on it. It was files of all the short stories that he'd been writing through all these years without me knowing it. Stories, um, that were clearly just about my siblings, never about me, whatever. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> stories about his childhood. My dad used to always tell me when I was little, like, you write what you know. And I would look at him and say, like, I don't know anything. And he would say, that's true. <laughs> but someday you will. This is all happening right now. This will all be what you know. There was also a notebook uh, in there. And it was a notebook that had all of my dad's little snippets of ideas, much like this notebook, a notebook that would not make sense probably to him if he were to read it today or to anybody else who picked it up, including me. But I could see it for what it was, even if I couldn't understand what those thoughts were, which were, those were the kernels of ideas. And in the back of the notebook was a ledger of everything that he had ever submitted for publication and the status. And they were all rejected. All of them. My dad had a 100% rejection rate, and he still wrote all the time, all the time. Right before he died, when we didn't know he was sick, but I do think he knew, um, he finished a novel, and um, we f I formed an LLC with my sister so that it wouldn't be self-published. It would be <laughs> published by Silver Bay Press, who has only ever published one book and only ever will. And um, we put it out there. And then we found out how sick my dad was. And I look back at that book, and at the time, and at that box of writing, and at every moment I spent with my dad scratching in my little notebook, and I think, I am my dad's wildest dream. And all I have to do is just write what I know. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Nora McInerney and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering where McInerney finds guests for her podcasts. They find us. Or, um, or sometimes I'll read something and I'll think, oh my gosh, I have to talk to this person and I'll just send them a message and they'll be like, what, no. And they'll be like, no, it's, I'm, I promise you, this is not like a scam, I'm just a weird stranger who wants to, <laughs> wants to cry with you. <laughs> uh, so that's how it happens. Mostly people go through our website, ttfa.org, and they submit a story, but um, sometimes we find people, but we truly have, I mean, I could make a podcast twice a day, every day for the next 10 years and never repeat a story. Because as personal as, or as universal as all of these are, where you're like, I lost my husband, I lost a baby, my dad's dead. Every story is also so, so different. And that's what, um, that's what honestly makes me love them, so. This audience member asks about the difference between moving on and moving forward. I gave a TED talk about this. Um, thank you for coming to my TED Talk, uh, is a joke that I can say now. It's still not uh, humorous, but people do laugh at it. So um, the difference between moving on and moving forward is uh, one word. And it's also, it's so hard to tell because they look exactly the same from the outside. And I hate, hate, hate so much, and I think anybody who has lost somebody hates the phrase moving on. Um, I did. I remember the first time somebody said it to me was at Aaron's funeral, bless their heart. They were like, you are still young, 
and beautiful. I was like, thank you, I'm still, uh, like I'm 31, I just know, <laughs> like, I mean, I get what? Um, and they were like, and you will meet someone. And I was like, this is getting weird. And they were like, and you will move on. And I was like, please die. <laughs> um, <laughs> was that out loud? I mean, no, don't now, but like, yeah, I wouldn't care. Um, it was just so terrible. And people kept saying that to me and they didn't mean it cruelly. They just, they, I don't know, there's sort of this conventional Western wisdom, even if you are, uh, uh, even if you are a religious person and there is some sort of you know, uh, grief ritual uh, associated with your faith, it kind of doesn't matter. No offense, but it doesn't matter because really the U.S. is ruled by the Church of Human Resources and we get three to five business days uh, for a funeral and then like, you just gotta get back on it. We need those PowerPoints. Uh, you gotta be in a meeting, gonna need you present. Could you stop crying? What's going on? Actually, don't wanna know. How are you? Honestly, didn't really need to hear the answer. Um, we are just a society that is really, really, really bad at grief. So when we say to somebody, I hope you move on, it's just like, I hope you don't get that sadness on me or like bring it too close to me. And we don't mean it in a cruel way. It's just like too much for us. People honestly, truly, they do look at my life and they say, I'm so glad you've moved on because I have remarried and we have four children in our blended family. We live on a cul-de-sac. Okay, I used to have a minivan, but that's not a wise car to have in Minneapolis when you have a sloped driveway. It just couldn't, I was like, I have a minivan that lives in the street. It's like, anyways, I miss that minivan. It's a great car. <laughs> so, Honda, sponsor me wherever you are. I'm just gonna need a different driveway. Anyways, people would think, you know, oh, you've moved on, but I've moved forward because that's what life requires. You, you, you find yourself in this world that is still spinning and time is still uh, progressing and you are still living. So I say that I've moved forward, but I haven't moved on from Aaron. Aaron is a part of who I am and so is my dad. Honestly, I think about my dad every single day. I think about Aaron every single day. So much so that honestly, sometimes, I just said earlier, people don't forget that their loved ones are dead. I do sometimes and then I'll, it's like I'm finding out all over again. I'm like, oh man. My dad will not like that episode of Game of Thrones because he's dead. It's just so, they're still so present in my lives that to me the phrase moving on is really um, kind of cruel and it kind of implies that you should only be sad for so long or that um, the bad things in your life, the hard things, the difficult things should just be something that you sort of box up and leave in the past. But really I think that these formative experiences stay a part of you. I said in my TED talk, but I'll repeat the joke. It's not like we don't send out like a, you know, a baby gift for our dear friend. And then five years later, you know, talk to them and think like, oh my God, your kid's five, get over it. <laughs> like, I get it, you're a mom. We don't do that. We allow people to share their joy with us and we want to keep celebrating that, but we don't allow ourselves the same grace when it comes to grief. This question is if McInerney's columns in Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine are true. Yes, they are all real. My child did get hit by somebody's roller bag in the airport. And I was like, honestly, I write best from a place of rage. I was like, this is content. My husband was like, I just saw you chase a man through a concourse. I was like, yeah, and I overtook him and I made him apologize. The cops were like, where are you running for? I was like, 
he hid my kid. Pop was like, I don't even know the full story. I don't need to hear it. Um, yeah, just like, I mean, my child is the size of a roller bag. He's so small and dense. It was just like, like it was so loud. I was like, what was that sound? I'm like, I didn't even, I, like, I didn't even comfort him. I was like, rage, like, <laughs> like you're mine. Um, yeah, so those are, those are real. We really had a snapping turtle, like eggs in our yard. Yesterday my child found a turtle, he couldn't keep it. It's been very tragic for our whole family. I was like, maybe you could. I was like, no, it's a snapping turtle, it's gonna get dark real soon. Um, he named it Jeff. It's very, it's bawling. He's like, I, just, I barely even know Jeff and now I have to let him go. And I'm like, this is, that's life. Wow, yeah. Go, let's go, let go of Jeff together. Also, he's probably covered in E. coli. This audience member notices that Nora McInerney doesn't often use the word but. Instead, she often says, yes and. Is this intentional? Yes, yes. Like most of my life, I thought things were like either good or bad. Um, I was either really good or really bad. People were either good or bad. And I think that I started to shift that thinking when Aaron was sick because because um, he was sick, he was going to die. I Googled it once and then never again. Stage four glioblastoma is medical speak for like dying. It's really, really bad. And those years were so hard and also they were so good. They were so good. They were so happy. There was so much happiness and there was so much heartache and they were all so tangled up together and that's really the only way that any of us survive life, is that, um, that it is all mixed together and it does all happen at once. When we were at the, um, the funeral home trying to pick out my dad's casket with my brothers, my little brother, and this will not make sense on the podcast, kept telling the funeral director that my dad wanted a, and she was like, what? And he was like, you know, like a Dracula box. And he just kept making that symbol. He wouldn't stop and she was like, we call it a, a coffin. He was like, yeah, but it's gotta be. She's like, that's the shape of a coffin. He was like, okay, but please stop. And we were all like laughing. This woman, it was probably the weirdest interaction she's ever had. She was like, or, he was like, write down Dracula box. Okay, I need to know that you know what I mean. What I mean. Don't order the wrong thing. Dracula box. Um, and I remember getting into the car with my siblings afterwards, realizing that my brothers had nothing to wear. My dad was a sharp dresser. My brothers were like, what are we going to wear to this funeral? And I was like, God, I have to take you dummies to the mall? And my sister and my mom and I had to all get in the same car, you know, three across, adults, and, and take my brothers to Nordstrom Rack, where then they were also adding other stuff in the car. And I'm like, socks? You don't own socks? Like, what? We lose a brother, he's 40, by the way, he comes up holding a Lego bag. I was like, this is, what is this? But it was just all of these things are always mixed up together. And especially now, especially now that I have kids who are older and you don't have a blended family without things breaking beforehand. And so we have this wonderful family. And also, these kids had something else. Like we are happy now and they are carrying things that happened to them before. And I want them to know that their current happiness does not come at the cost of erasing everything else. Just like your current sorrow does not come at the cost of like future happiness. Like there is space for all of these things. And if you tune in, you will see that you have been experiencing them all along. Our next question 
is of all the mediums of storytelling machinery practices, what is her favorite? Writing books, podcasts, or TED Talks. I like to do all of them. I'm not just being like, I like to do all of them. One, um, none of them is like a good job in and of itself. I'll be honest. <laughs> like people are like, ooh, podcast. Like, oh, she's ri No. <laughs> I'm a public radio person. <laughs> so let's just put that out there. Um, I'm really good at doing things that aren't um, like, um, you know, financially viable, as a <laughs> financially sustainable. But if you do enough, like you can do it. You know, people are like, I want to be a writer. I'm like, great, like do that. And also five other things minimum, okay? Um, but I love, I love writing. I write every day. I write something every day. Um, what I think I get asked a lot is like, how do you, like, what do you do? You, I literally just sit down and write. And it could just be a couple pages in here. I could be working on part of a script for a podcast. Um, I could be working on like an essay that I'll submit to a magazine. I could be working on my MSP column. I just have to do something every day and being able to switch gears between things is really helpful. It really is because it's such different writing and I get to use like a different voice. I love doing a TED talk. The one thing I don't like, and I'm, I'm never gonna do it again, is talking in front of teenagers. I would rather do an impromptu naked TED talk <laughs> than talk in front of, if you are a high school teacher, what chip do you have in your brain that I do not? And like, how? It was like, it was like just nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I was like, I, are we in the same room? <laughs> like, do you hate me? Because I hate me right now. Like, am I the biggest loser in this world? God, it was the worst. And it was also at my son's high school, which is the high school I went to. And it was like, oh wow, all these feelings are back. And then he walked, his class came in next and he was like, get out. And I was like, I know, I'm trying. Like, <laughs> like kicked open the emergency door. Um, but yeah, I like to be able to write a lot of things. And honestly, I, I, I probably always will. Like even if I had like one amazing job, I'd always be writing a lot of different kinds of stuff. This question is if McInery's losses changed the close relationships in her life. Yeah, it changed all of my relationships. And I think also a, a, a thing to realize is like death is like the first loss and then there are always more. There are always more. There's always like secondary, third, what's third dairy? <laughs> Multiple. They keep going, okay? The losses just keep coming. I, I don't, I, I've, I'm missing certain friends, which is fine. Some people just leave, they make room for new people. At first, um, honestly, and I wrote about it real gently in my first book, uh, it was really hard with me and my mom. Really, really hard. And the thing is, when you're carrying two losses, you both lost the same two people, but you lost them in different ways, it is very hard to grieve together. You can't do it. In a normal situation, your dad would die and you'd be sad and you lost a dad and she lost a husband, but you kind of lean on each other in that loss. It's harder to do when you both lost a husband and you lost a dad. And I will, I think my mom would admit that too. It was like, not great, it's better. It's better. But I think that it takes, I mean, it took me a lot of work on myself. I would say probably the first three and we're coming up on five years, I was very wrapped around my own experience. And that's necessary, that's how you heal. But I could not take on the fact that these losses had 
touched other people. Like, I really could not do that. And now I have so much more tenderness towards, um, towards my mom and what she lost, which is so different from what I lost. But, you know, my mom was married to my dad for 40 years, and I was married to Aaron for four. And I know, like, that's losing your whole life and the future, you thought. And also, the worst part of me would be like, but you got 40 years. Like, that's the worst part of me. And like, that's comparing. Like, nobody wins when you try to compare losses. It's like comparing two things that don't go together. What a great sentence. <laughs> the last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if it's ever difficult for strangers to know so much about her. Nobody knows everything about you. You know, like nobody. And even if you read all my books and you look at all of my Instagram posts and you like, you know, peek in my windows, like you don't know everything about me. My husband doesn't know everything about me. Like I try to tell him and he's like, honestly, I don't, I don't need this part, this part of you right now. And I'm like, but hey, you know, he falls asleep like within 30 seconds. And I'm like, I was just thinking about the worst thing I ever did. Can I tell you? And he's like, absolutely not. I'm like, okay, so it started. Um, you know, like, no, we, we all, like, we choose what to share with everybody. And I think that what I share is a good representation of who I am, but I would never share something that it would be uh, disarming for me for somebody else to know. Does that make sense? Like the most disarming thing that anybody ever knew about me was that I lost, okay, so we're gonna set the scene. Me, busy professional woman, goes to the airport, is like, my plane boards in 10 minutes, looks in my wallet, wait, looks in my bag, where's my wallet? Thinks back. It's on top of the toilet in the baby's, in the kid's bathroom where you were changing a diaper and you set it there thinking, I'll remember this. No, you won't. Go through security. I'm like, funny story, I don't have a wallet or an ID. And they were like, mm. Okay, we're gonna have to touch you a lot. And I was like, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, I'm up for it. And then they, they dial a phone and they, they go, um, do you drive? And they know what kind of car you drive. And they know, like, they know what your mom's name, they know all these things and you're like, and they're like, which one of these names is not your brother? And I was like, oh my, all of a sudden it's like, who is my brother? I don't know. <laughs> like, it's just, they know, they're, who knows who's on the other end of the phone that they know all these things about you. That's what it takes to get on an airplane without you know, an ID in the year 2019, that's alarming. But I don't put anything on the internet or in a book where somebody would like repeat it back to me and I'd be like, what? How did you know that? Um, it is alarming to uh, my younger children, uh, which I never thought about. I, never, I didn't start an Instagram page when Instagram was a thing that you could be known on, honestly. It was like, I had six followers. Um, I didn't think about that, so I shared photos of my child, and I did that honestly until pretty recently, and then I just thought to myself, I think that's his life. Like, I think that's his life. And I took all those photos down, and, um, and, uh, and I don't do that anymore, because nobody, I don't publish my baby's name. Also, we just call him baby. I don't even think he knows his name. <laughs> so it's a fourth kid. I'm like, did we name him? I don't know. Um, so there are things like that that you keep you know, to yourself. Just like I told the story of Aaron's life, I told the story of Aaron's death, but I didn't tell the things that weren't mine to tell. Um, and I didn't tell the things that, you know, are, are mine, but are just mine. But. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chan Hassan event with Nora McInerney. 
Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with 3D Umrigar at Hennepin County Library, Plymouth. Over the past decade, 3D Umrigar has emerged as a leading, cherished voice in Indian American literature. Her fiction showcases the wealth of diversity found within the world's second largest country. Her latest, The Secrets Between Us, explores the entrenched class divide in modern India. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.